there are a lot of conversations these days about how to talk about the past, how to remember it, how to memorialize it, how to teach it, and how to pass it on to those who come behind us. Then again, any part of any conversation like this has to also be about how much of the past is actually back in the past and how much of it is really here in the present. Last Tuesday night, while I was helping out with the mayoral town hall that Rebecca's organization put on, I was able to have a long conversation with a Turkish man about the earthquakes that had hit his home country the day before. If you followed this story at all, then you know just how terrible this situation is. Entire cities, he said, have been destroyed and may well end up being abandoned. And while earthquakes of that magnitude are always devastating, my friend that night was telling me why these were particularly so. Turkey, you see, hasn't always enjoyed modern building codes. So a number of the buildings in that part of the country were especially susceptible to collapse. What's more, he said, even when the building codes had been updated by the government, the prevalence of bribery made sure that even when everybody knew that earthquakes were common in that part of the world and everybody knew how to build buildings that were safer from them, those codes were not always followed. And so last Monday, the bill came due. Years of neglect and years of abuse decisions made decades ago by people long gone suddenly emerged into the light of the present day. In his play The Tempest, William Shakespeare wrote that the past is prologue. Well, about 75 years ago, William Faulkner, astute Southerner that he was, gave that sentiment a well-known update. The past, he said, isn't dead. As a matter of fact, it's not even the past. We can see it all around us. Everything that we have is built on the back of something else. You can, for example, you can draw a straight line from the gauge of railroad tracks in America all the way back to the length of axles under Roman chariots. And I checked with David Orr before the service. That's actually true. You can trace the mustard barbecue sauce that I was blessed enough to grow up with in South Carolina back to an influx of German immigrants 
in the 18th and 19th centuries to my corner of that state. Have you ever met a German? They will put mustard on anything, including pulled pork barbecue, it turns out. The present, my friends, is always connected to the past. Which also means when you turn that idea around that the past and the present go a long way towards determining the future. Just as decisions made years and years ago impact the present world in places as far, as far flung as Antakya, Turkey, and Orangeburg, South Carolina, decisions made in the present will have an impact on our communities futures as well. This morning in our Deuteronomy text, we see God and God's people having this same conversation. By this point in the story, Moses has led his people through the wilderness and we find them today gathered together on a high hill, almost a mountaintop and looking out over the Jordan Valley below them. The promised land. The land that had been promised to them for centuries. The place that they had been marching towards ever since they left Egypt. See, he says for you. He says to you, today I have set before you life and prosperity, death and and adversity, which of these will you choose? If you choose well, he says, your descendants will be blessed. Therefore, choose life so that you and your descendants might live. And yet, like every choice made in this world, this Two is one that must be made again and again and again. Generation upon generation so that this text and this conversation and this call to decide is not just for the people who are standing there listening to him. It's also for their descendants who will come after them and who will have found themselves reading this story in the Torah. Those descendants who would have inherited these decisions would be called to make decisions of their own. They must remember, you see, if they themselves are to choose well, then they must remember, they must remember the promises made by their ancestors, the discernment, the faithfulness, the boldness. They must remember that all that they've inherited came from a people who came before them. All of their blessings. And they must remember that if they are going to be inspired themselves to continue building upon those blessings for those who will follow. This is a truth that St. Paul knew as well. Here in his letter to the Corinthians, you can hear Paul working to explain to the church how to be good stewards of what they have inherited. 
Paul, of course, planted the church in Corinth, and so it's only natural that that's the metaphor that he begins with. I planted, he writes, and Apollos watered, but God, God gave the growth. Then, however, his metaphor switches from agriculture to construction, from planting to building. You are God's field, he says. You are God's building, he writes. And like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and somebody else is building upon it. Each builder must choose with care how to build. After establishing the church, Paul had moved on to establish other churches in other places, entrusting the Corinthian church to others as, of course, he had to. And how will they build? With gold or silver? Precious stones, perhaps? With wood, he asks? With straw? At this point in the story, Paul is across the water in Ephesus. He can only be so helpful to the Corinthians as they discern what it is to live faithfully. But like Moses in Deuteronomy, what he can do is remind them of where they have come from. Of the faithfulness into which the foundations of their church have been sunk. And he can call them to be so bold as to be good stewards of that faithfulness in the present day. Now, I can hear some of you out there thinking, I knew it. It's a stewardship sermon. I knew he was going to preach a stewardship sermon. All he talks about these days is stewardship. That's not quite true. This isn't a stewardship sermon. It's kind of a stewardship sermon. But it's not my fault. You see, Deuteronomy 30 and 1 Corinthians 3 are the texts assigned for this Sunday, year A, sixth, sun sixth Sunday after Epiphany. So I'm really just up here serving you what was already on the menu. I mean, it was either going to be this or we were going to have to have a conversation with Jesus about lying and killing and adultery. And I mean, if y'all would prefer that. So this might be a stewardship sermon, but it's not that kind of a stewardship sermon. Instead, it is a sermon about what it means to be a steward of a legacy. Like Israel reading Deuteronomy and remembering the covenant made at Sinai, the promises made by their ancestors and made to their ancestors by God. Like the Corinthians under new leadership being reminded of Paul and his love for him and their, his insistence that they continue to love one another because love never fails. What it means, in other words, for us to be a community that is not just spread out around Jacksonville, but also stretches backwards 
in time, back to the people who wanted to establish a different kind of Baptist church here on the south side. The kind of people who started off by building a gymnasium instead of a sanctuary because they wanted their neighbors and their neighbors' children to have a place for fellowship. The kind of people who, though being teetotalers themselves, a number of them, refused to bind the consciousness of their friends by prohibiting deacons from having alcohol, and then ran off a preacher who was trying to make them do that. The kind of people who valued community as high as anything else, community in the first sense of the gym that meant recreation and fellowship and fun, a gift given to their neighbors and their neighbors' families. And then community in the second sense, the sense of that deacon boat that meant patience and kindness and latitude, a, a generosity of spirit that wasn't threatened by difference or diversity of opinion. You and I, we are here building on the foundations entrusted to us by our mothers and our fathers in the faith, and it is up to us to decide how we will do that. How that community, how this community, won't just stretch backwards in time, but will continue to stretch forward. And I'm happy to say that we have already made some of those decisions. Several weeks ago, we resumed our pulpit swap with our friends down the road at the temple. We joined them in their worship, and they joined us here in ours. And while on one level it was, a quite, it was quite a bit of fun, on another level it also in a time of anti-Semitic flyers being strewn around Mandarin and giant swastikas being projected onto buildings, it also is quite a big deal. It's a statement of identity, commitment. It's a statement of faith. Several months ago, we were approached by our friends at Amani Sasa and asked to host a fundraiser. Amani Sasa, for those who may not be familiar, is a refugee organization in Kampala, Uganda, that focuses on young women who have fled to that city in order to escape warfare and violence. The organization's leadership was traveling through the U.S., reconnecting with partners. And we were asked to host an event for them, so we did one of those things that we do best around here. We threw a party. With two weeks' notice, we, and I keep saying we, but I didn't do anything, y'all, y'all threw them a party and raised more money for them than they have ever seen raised at an event like that. Imagine.
imagine what might have happened if we'd had three weeks notice. I could go on. I could talk about the homeless men and women who rely on us for food and other assistance. I could talk about the blessing of the simple existence of this campus. The immigrants in our community who come here week after week in order to take classes so that they might pass a citizenship exam. The children who come here and with our partnership with the JCC learn how to use their God-given voices to sing. I could talk about the multiple Sunday school classes that are right now doing the daily, sometimes hourly, hard work of caring for brothers and sisters who have gotten a devastating diagnosis or suffering through the loss of a loved one. I could talk about little friends, about HACA, about IWS, about lives that have been changed just down the road and lives that have been changed all across the world. I could tell y'all all of those things that we are doing right now, but I suspect that they sound familiar because they are the types of things that men and women have been doing at HAB for generations. What those things cannot do, however, is become boring for us. Because even if in the best of times those things are noteworthy in this time, in the strangeness of post-pandemic America, things like these and things like this are no less than remarkable. I'll go ahead and wrap up now. Because after lunch, we've got a meeting, and after that, we've got a football game to watch. And even if it's not a Gamecock football game, I know that's important to some of you people. But like the people in the two texts before us, you and I have been given the great gift of being stewards of this place and its witness and its ministries. Who it has been and how it has served and all of the ways that it has reflected the love of its Lord into the lives of its neighbors through thought and word and deed. We have been given the chance to remember and to live into that legacy, the chance to build upon it and expand it and preserve it for all of those who will come after us. And so in that way, it's up to us to rephrase Brother Faulkner's old quote to decide whether or not the past is truly dead or whether it continues to live here and now in the present. Thanks be to God.